water, don't you know? The hardest part is over, let it in. Let your clarity define you in the end. We will only just remember how it feels. Our lives are made in these small hours. These little wonders, these twists and turns of fate. I, I tell you, that was a, a glimpse real quick into the uh, three weeks that we had up in North Carolina and the Outer Banks for our vacation this year. And I, I wanted you to really catch a glimpse for that. I love that song that was playing in the background. You know, all life is made in these small hours, in these little moments, this string of events that take place. And, and I wanted you to catch a glimpse into that through these pictures because this particular vacation each year is a very, very significant part of the spiritual journey that uh, myself and my wife and our family has. Uh, especially for me, it is every year a very, very uh, particular and specific part of the way that God tends to speak to me. So I go to vacation in the summer, to this particular vacation every year, anticipating that God is going to have something very big to say through some event or th some string of events, and that that is going to shape me, and then I'm going to come back here, and that shaping is going to affect all of us. And so what has traditionally happened over the last few years is God has done such significant things in me during that time that I come back and the first weekend back at Mosaic is really to, to speak out of the overflow of what has happened on the vacation. So we've kind of gotten used to that now. And, and the last few years have been very eventful, and there's been a lot of things going on to pick from. Uh, the first few years of vacation, we had a lot of small children, so most of our time was spent in the exhausting process of saving children from killing themselves. And so uh, there was no relaxing, chilling, uh, wondering. You, you were just constantly on it. And so in all of those stories, multiple stories would emerge, and I would just kind of got, God, which one do you want me to pick? And then just as our kids were starting to get a little older, uh, God invited us to move from a family of six human beings to a family of 10 human beings. And we had the incredible privilege of seeing uh, four of our children enter into our family. And so uh, three years ago, uh, when we went on vacation, our very first vacation as a whole family, half of my family couldn't even speak the language I speak. And so our entire vacation wasn't saving small children from killing themselves by shouting at a distance, no! Uh, shouting was useless because they didn't even understand. So it was really running to save children from killing themselves because they didn't even have language at the time. It was an exhausting vacation, uh, fun because lots of firsts, but exhausting and that we're just trying to establish a basic rhythm of two worlds colliding. And then last year we went on vacation and uh, that half of my family could now speak our language and I kind of wish that all my kids couldn't speak English because it seems much worse when they can actually because then they can talk back and they can complain and they can whine and they can tell you what they don't like about everything. And, and so last year was a difficult vacation, a vacation of really just the reality
reality of mixed cultures and traditions and things not working together, lots of baggage from year one, lots of stuff to work through, and a clarity on how long we still have to go, how far we still have to walk. And so that was sort of the vacation, like, oh, uh, plus you know, over the last two years, things like my, my six-year-old or five-year-old then being hit in the mouth with a surfboard and bleeding everywhere and me caring more about my shirt than my kid. You know, these kinds of things emerged. And, and so uh, I just had so many stories to pick from. And, and then this year happened. And as you can see in the slideshow, what the slideshow seems to present to you is that we had a great vacation. Did you see that? Lots of smiling faces, looked like the kids were playing together. Did you see that? Some soccer on the field, some, some beaching, surfing, thumbs up, lots of smiles. Uh, doing the, and so you, you, you look at that slideshow and you would think, you would think based on the slideshow, seems like they had a really great vacation. Seems like everybody got along. Seems like we're kind of through all of that stuff. And, and here's the thing. In this particular case, unlike Facebook, you are actually getting a very clear picture of our vacation, if that's what you think. It really was a very good vacation. It really did go really well. The kids really did play together well. They kept each other busy. They played soccer. They loved the ocean. There was lots of freedom because they, all eight of my children understood the realities and boundaries of where we were. Uh, they were all comfortable with the ocean and the beach, and they all uh, were part of the traditions that we have established over the years and loved them. I mean, we, Brooke and I relaxed on this vacation. We, we sat around some. We, we read a book some. We, we chilled a little bit. And that sounds awesome to you. And you're like, wow, that's exciting. But that was a problem for me in some ways because the entire first week occurred and there was no eventful stories. Everything was uneventful. And so I started realizing we're a week into our vacation and I have nothing. I have nothing to tell you. I have nothing to, to hear from God on. I mean, I need, I need a story. I need something big. I need something to happen. And so I was patiently waiting for all the wonder of our vacation to begin to fall apart and unravel so that I would have some terrible stories to come and tell you. It wasn't happening. So then uh, we, we got to Saturday, and it was Saturday um, afternoon, and you know, when you've got 14 children cooped up inside of a house with six or seven adults, uh, that, that, gets, that, that gets a little crazy sometimes. So I thought, you know what, uh, it's late in the afternoon, the, the sun it hasn't totally set yet, but we're moving toward that. I'm going to take several of the kids, I'm going to head down to the beach, they can play on the sand dunes and pick up shells, and we'll have a great time. So I, I took uh, my two 12-year-old sons, uh, I took my seven-year-old son, I think I took two of the cousins. I might have taken one or two others. I sort of lose count around five or six. Generally, I have about eight to ten children around. And so uh, we kind of headed down to the beach, and, and they were just going to play on the sand dunes. I took a beach chair with me. I did not have my swimsuit on. I had, I had uh, some, some pants and a shirt on because we're not going in the ocean. We're just going to hang out. And so I put the chair down, and I'm sitting relaxing and chilling. One of my 12-year-old sons got a boogie board for his birthday last year that we finally gave to him this year. In a family of eight, it takes about a year for you to actually get your present that you received last year. So he finally got it. And so he was excited to use the boogie board. And uh, he was out there and, and the waves looked pretty good. So he said, Dad, would you mind if I go in and just try the boogie board again? And I said, that's fine. I'm just sitting here relaxing. You go ahead and do that. Other kids won the dunes. He's boogie boarding. Waves were good, but a little rough. So he kind of comes out and he's like, they're, they're a little rough for boogie boarding right now. In the meantime, my other 12-year-old son had seen uh, him in the water. So he came down and said, hey, can I just go in the water a little bit? And I'm like, that's fine. No problem. You go in the water. I'm not going to let the little kids in, but these guys, I mean, they're good swimmers. They're strong. They, they, they love it. So he goes in the water. I'm sitting relaxing and my seven-year-old comes to me, Cole, and he goes, dad, dad, can I go in the water? And he's a very strong little swimmer, loves the water understands the ocean well. So I said, sure, buddy, that's no problem. Go ahead. He gets his big goggles. You saw them in there. He wore them all three weeks. I mean, looked like despicable me with a little nose. And, just, and so he puts his goggles on. And as I look up, uh, I see Mahadi, my 12-year-old son. Uh, he's out in the ocean. And, and you know that moment as a parent where you, you do the calculation in your head of the distance from the beach to where the kid is? And it was that moment where I'm like, he's a little too far out. I mean, not, not a lot too far out, not a panic, nothing like that. He's standing in the water, but it's moved from sort of that, that, that chest level kind of deal to the, to the shoulder level. And the danger in that in the ocean is that it just takes one swell to get your footing 
loose, and then you, you're sort of swimming, and, and the ocean doesn't stand still. It kind of moves, and so I like my kids just to be in that place where they've always got sure footing if an adult isn't out there with them. And so I see Mahadi, and I'm like, he's a little too far out in a minute. If he goes any further, I'm going to call him back. He, he knows, though. He, he knows the ocean. And I look at Cole, and I say to Cole, Buddy, do not go out to where your brother is. He's too deep, and it's too deep for you. Now, when you tell a seven-year-old boy something is too big or too deep or too hard for them, they have a singular mindset. I'm going to show dad how foolish he is, and I'm going to prove to him that I'm wise. I try to tell my kids that's never a good idea, but that's what he is. I should have said to my son, go out to Mahadi. He wants to play with you, then he would never have gone out there. But... (laughs) I said, don't go out to where Mahadi is. So Cole goes, okay, and he turns and starts running. One of the other kids asks me a question. I turn and I'm talking to the other kid and about a minute's worth of conversation takes place. And when I turn back around to get up and just say, Mahadi, not so deep, Cole, my seven-year-old, is at Mahadi. He's with him. Now listen, at that moment, I'm mad. I mean, I'm super mad because I'm like, unbelievable. I mean, I just told the kid, don't go there. And he made a beeline straight to his brother. It was direct defiance. I mean, we have an issue here. He's already not listened a bunch. I'm I'm after this. I'm taking this down. And so I get up out of my chair, which, by the way, I was relaxing in. And I get up, and I walk to the edge of the ocean. I got my shoes on and my clothes on. And I stand on the edge of the ocean. I shout this, you're in so much trouble, young man unbelievable. I told you not. I'm shouting at him like, get back here now. And, and as, as he's out there, he turns around with, you know, I'm expecting that defensive face, the big smile, the I didn't hear you, the uh, I misunderstood, all the lies that project out of a child when they're trying to get out of what they know they did. And, and so he turns around, I'm expecting that face, but what I see is not that face. I see that face as he turns where he sort of lost his footing now. He's, just, he's a good little swimmer, but in the ocean, you know, and, and you can tell it's not a happy face. It's sort of a, uh, I think I got myself into some trouble here. I, I can't stand here. I, I, I mean, I could have told him this. And so the first thought that crosses my mind is, I've told my kids several times, if you go too deep and get in trouble, I ain't coming out to get you because it's too cold. So don't go too deep. <laughs> See, I've told them that. I've said, I will not come and rescue you because I'm not going in this ocean right now because I'm comfortable here in the warm sun. Uh, Tragically, I know in my heart that's not totally true. If they really are in trouble, I'll go get them, but I want them to believe that so they don't go too deep. So I'm standing there, I'm kind of calculating, like, do I go in and get him? I mean, I'm in my, this is so ridiculous. And then I remembered that last year, when my poor son that's now panicking in the ocean was bleeding half to death from his mouth, I kept him at a distance so I wouldn't get blood on my shirt, and I told you all that. I felt this year I needed something where I actually stepped in and was a good dad (laughs) instead of bad. And so I'm like, maybe I should go in this time so I can at least tell the church I went in, okay? So, so I, 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 I start walking into the water and I realize I gotta go get him because he's sort of like, eh, eh. and I'm like, ah! So I, I smash through the waves, right? Because I'm mad and I need something to fight and I don't necessarily wanna fight him because he's little and so I wanna just kinda use the waves to kinda get some of that aggression out and I'm just smashing through the waves and I'm moving through the water and, and I can move through the water pretty fast and when I'm, I'm in, a, in a hurry and I'm not in a hurry because I wanna save him. Frankly, I want him to panic a little while I just want to get to him so I can take him to the beach and ground him for a month. And so I'm smashing through the waves and I'm using all my energy and I'm pulling and I can kind of feel my legs burning a bit as I'm pushing through and my clothes are soaked now and I'm freezing cold and I finally get to Cole and I grab his arm and he he can't stand and I'm about chest deep now and I grab him and I'm like, I'm so mad at you. And I got to Cole really fast. I mean, I got to him really fast. I was pretty impressed with myself. I'm like, that, that was unbelievable. I moved through those waves quickly. And I grab him and I turn around and I look at Mahadi, who's just a little further than Cole, and I go, you are too deep. Turn around and swim back this way. Because I'm kind of mad at Mahadi because this whole thing started because he was too deep. And so I grab Cole and I turn around to start pushing back to the, to the uh, beach and put him down and then, and then wait for Mahadi to come and ground them both. And as I turn around to start pushing back, I have an odd experience. See, I know the ocean very well, I love the ocean. And the ocean, if you're not past the break, the ocean's always pushing toward the beach. Now, 
as a wave is building, it pulls, but it's a natural rhythm. It pulls and then the swell pushes and then it pulls. So all you do is you just naturally move with the swells and the pull is only for a few seconds and then it's gone. So you never have to worry about the pullback because it's always going to compensate with the swell. But as I turn to pull coal, I just feel like the amount of push that I got to put in to move toward the beach is not totally normal. Like I can feel it. So I'm like, oh man. And I feel Cole drift back. So he's on top of the water, but I'm having to pull him. Usually he's just by my side and we're just moving together, but I'm having to pull him. And so I'm pushing and this water's pushing. And I'm like, maybe we're just in that moment where it's building a swell. And I look back and there's not a big swell coming. So I just push further. And then I just wait for a second because my footing, I've got footing right now, but I'm feeling as I'm trying to walk, I'm losing ground and the swell comes from behind me and as the swell hits me I expect it to just kind of give me a boost forward then you catch that momentum then you move fast on the sand and then you get you get ahead except this time the swell comes right through me and the water doesn't move in that direction so in other words, everything's still pulling back despite an entire swell coming by so now I suddenly go, shoot, I gotta, this is gonna take work. Now I'm a little madder at the kid, right? And so I, I buckle down, I push my shoulders under the water so I can direct my body forward, and I dig my feet in, and I start pushing. But I'm pushing very hard at this point, and I'm moving my arms, and I'm starting to feel the burn in my lungs because I expelled lots of angry energy coming to coal. Now I regret that because I'm, I'm needing this energy to get out now. So I push through the waves, and my feet aren't really getting great traction but I get a little lower down, I grab Cole, I turn to Mahadi and I say, Mahadi, you gotta swim, because I'm thinking, I don't wanna come back and get you. Now he's also not standing at this point, so I'm like, oh! I'm like, swim! And so I'm, come on Mahadi, swim! And I'm pushing through, and it took me a while to pull through that with Cole. And Cole was dragging. So finally I get to the point where the break is actually happening. And so now you're, you're sort of in the tumble. A wave catches us. We tumble with the wave. That causes Cole to panic a little bit. He comes out. He loves the water. But I, I put him down. He's now waist deep. I put him down and I go, go back to the beach. Because I'm like, I, I may as well just go get Mahadi because I don't want to stand and call and call and call. I don't even know if he's going to listen. So I'm just going to get him. And so I tell Cole, go to the beach and stay on the beach. And I turn around to go back to Mahadi, and this big wave hits me, right? So it hits me, and I'm kind of taking off, and Cole gets pummeled. So he comes out from the wave, and he's panicking now, because he kind of panicked out there. And he goes, I can't do it. I can't do it. Which to which I wanted to lecture him for five minutes on, yes, you can. And I'm not going to carry you out there. You do it yourself. But I didn't have time for that, because Mahadi's still out there, and I'm mad. And so I pick Cole up, and I run with him as fast as I can to knee deep for me. And I set him down, and, and he's now also sort of wait. And I go, go. And he turns around, and he goes. I turn around to go back to Mahadi, and I see that Mahadi isn't where he was before he's further out so I'm kind of a little mad because I'm like come on this is ridiculous I told the kid to swim so I turn around and I head back to Mahadi now uh, at this point there's no one on the beach to speak of except one other little family because it's sort of late afternoon early evening everyone's gone back up for dinner all the other adults are up at the house I'm by myself and I, I realize there's really no one on the beach to speak of there's one guy on a boogie board kind of boogie boarding here next to me so I push through to Mahadi because I'm like, I got to get there. And again, I get to Mahadi like this, so fast. I was sort of impressed and that should have been a clue to me. See, because in North Carolina, all along the beach, there's little signs and they talk about a phenomenon that occurs in the ocean called a rip current. Now, rip current is not a big deal according to the signs, right? I mean, they, they should put a smiley face on the sign. The sign makes you feel comfortable about rip currents because this is what it says. It says a rip current that occurs once in a while, and it, it's a, a certain area of the ocean where it pulls back out into the deeper ocean. It kind of pulls through the break, and instead of pushing you forward, it pulls you back. What you do in a rip current is very simple. It's almost comforting. Take a book with you. It's going to be awesome. So what they say is that you never want to swim against a rip current because it is a force to be uh, reckoned with. What you want to do is swim sideways along the beach because the rip current's not very wide. It's usually no wider than this room, and so you just swim sideways as it's pulling you out into the ocean and eventually you'll pop out of the rip current and then you just swim back. A rip current can pull you out into the ocean as far as half a mile. And you just think that through for a second. Now, usually it doesn't. Usually it's just, you know, two, three, four hundred feet and then it pops you out and it pushes you back to the ocean. But it's definitely pulling you out into the deep waters where the big sharks are, okay? So, so you have to calculate, I've got to drift for a while and be, uh, you know, shark uh, food and, and then I, I'm going to make it back. And so when you're in a rip current, 
you have this sense when you read the sign, if I ever get in a rope car, just get on your back, relax, uh, enjoy the sun, let it push you out, and you get back to the beach. When you're actually in a rip current, you want to go to the people that made that sign and say, have you ever been in one? Redo the sign. Say, panic, panic heavy. It's going to pull you out into deep waters. You're going to freak out and go nuts and want to get to the beach. And when you do, don't worry because you should call 911 because you'll never make it. That's what the sign should say because that's how it feels. I get to Mahadi and as I turn around, I get to him and I'm like, Mahadi, buddy, we got to get out of here. Now, he's exhausted at this point because he, he moved away, but not because he wasn't trying to swim to me. He was. He's been swimming against a rip current. I mean, that's the one thing you don't do. So I get to him and I say, Mahadi, I want you to grab my feet uh, by the ankles and, and we're going to swim out of here. Now, I haven't thought rip current yet. If I had, it would have been different. One thing you do in, in lifeguarding is you never have someone grab your feet, okay? So, uh, and I know better, but I'm not thinking rip current, right? I'm saying, uh, you know, if he just takes my feet, I'm a very strong swimmer. We can just swim out. So he grabs my feet, I turn around, I start swimming, and I realize I can't kick now because I'm going to hurt the kid, and that's where all your power is in swimming. So I've got my arms going, my lungs are burning, my legs are burning from running to Mahadi and back with Golan, back to Mahadi and back and forth in the ocean, and, and he's holding on, and I start swimming, and we are going nowhere. As a matter of fact, here's what it felt like. Mahadi's holding my feet. Have you ever been in a swimming pool when you're trying to swim and someone's holding your feet, and they're laughing, ha, 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 and you're like, ah, and you can't do it? That's how it felt. And so I realized this is not good. And so finally, Mahadi gets exhausted and he lets go of my feet. So I turn back around and I realize I can't stand here at all. We're, we're deep now. We got to swim. Things are pulling us out. And it dawns on me, this, this is not a good scenario at all. And I realize as exhausted as I am with all the energy depleted, I mean, I, you can feel it when everything's been taken out of you. I suddenly realize, you know, I don't know that I can swim out of this. I, even by myself, perhaps, but... With Mahadi, it's, it's, it's not going to happen. So I turn around and I'm just starting to think to myself, okay, what do I do now? He's exhausted. He's, he's panicking. I'm exhausted. I'm not panicking yet, but I've got that nervous feeling. And, and I've got I to rethink my scenario. And just as I'm doing that, and I've got Mahadi now, and I'm thinking, does he grab my feet again? That's not going to work. Do I get on my back? It dawns on me. It's very possible Mahadi and I do not make it out of this one. And it really had that thought. Because no one on the beach, no one's waving, no one's going, someone find out. We're out in the ocean. It's starting to get darker. Even if this is a rip current, it's going to take us way out. I got little kids on the beach. Hopefully one of them will have the wherewithal to go and get another parent. But by that time, we're, we're gone. Mahadi's sinking at this point. He's not swimming. And I don't know that I have the strength to keep him up. Like, I don't know that because I've never been in that scenario before. I hope I do, but I don't know. If I float on my back and he's on top of me, do we both sink? And so I start going, you know, I don't know that we make it out of this, but, but I got to keep Mahadi calm, calm because if he gets panicky now, it goes really bad. So I'm trying to think through, what do, what, what do I tell him? I mean, I realized at that moment telling him, Mahadi, buddy, I don't think we're going to make it. I think we're going to die here. It's probably not the best way to go. Uh, you know, I could, I could tell him Jesus is alive and we're going to be fine, but that's not going to work so well. So I'm just thinking through that. And as I realize, you know, I, I don't know that we get out of this one. Something hits me from behind. And I turn around, you know that boogie board guy that was out there boogie boarding? Well, it turns out while I was with Mahadi doing all this and swimming and him holding my feet and putting coal down and shouting, stay the beach and running back, the boogie board guy had the wherewithal to kind of look and say, huh, something's not right here. He swam out with the boogie board. He hits me with the boogie board and I go, huh? And he's right there and he goes, you guys need some help? And I go, yeah, it'd be great. He gets off the boogie board. We put Mahadi on the boogie board. Mahadi suddenly feels safe because he's on a floating device. I suddenly realize, even if we drift out now, you got a floating device. It's a, it's a different story. So he starts kicking. I start kicking. We each hold a side of the boogie board. We use our arms. And with a great deal of effort, man, going against a rip current is insane. We, we make it through the rip current. We get into the break. We tumble. We get out onto the beach. And we're fine. So I am exhausted. Mahadi's okay. Cole's crying. I'm like, don't worry about it, bud. Thank the gentleman. I go and I sit down in my chair. I'm soaked to the bone. I'm freezing cold. I'm totally exhausted. I can hardly breathe. You know what the first thought is that goes through my head? Yes, that's the story I've been waiting for. <laughs> I'm not even joking. I'm like, yes, that's the one, man. I mean, I'm, I, I'm glad we didn't die because I couldn't tell the story, but we didn't die, so now it's a great story. So I'm literally, I'm on my chair and I'm like, thank you, God. I mean, I'm mad at my kids, but thank you. 
This is awesome. It's a great story. I mean, I've already got it going. I mean, the boogie board, the gospel, you know, traction, the water currents, all this stuff. I mean, there's so many possibilities in the story. I mean, it can be uneventful. The rest of the two weeks, we're good to go. So I'm sitting in the chair, and I totally relax because I'm like, I don't have to worry about looking for a story that God's going to speak through anymore. I'm done. I got my story. So we go about the next week, and I say to God, look, whenever you're ready to tell me what you want to say about the story, I've got several ideas for you that I've presented, but you just let me know which one you want, and we're good to go. And I got to tell you, in that space in me where God tends to speak, nothing, zip, nada. I mean, the story's just there, just sitting there on a shelf, and I'm like, need some info, God, on the story. What scriptures do you want me to go to bring them to mind? I mean, this is, this is the big story, and nothing. Second, uh, second week goes by after the incident, so we're now three weeks in, and it's Saturday, and we're heading back on Sunday back here, and God has said nothing to me. On the, uh, on the Wednesday of that week, I started making stuff up. I really did. I was on my bed, and I'm like, all right, well, maybe God just wants me to pick and choose on this one. So I, I, I start dissecting the boogie board experience, and all this, and I realize as I'm doing it, it's so man-made. I'm like, this is, I just doesn't feel right. I need to hear from God, and, and so nothing. So I'm driving Saturday. We exchange some of our kids with my, with my parents, their grandparents, so they live in Virginia, so we drive halfway, and we meet up, and they take some of the kids. So I drive four hours with my boys, give them to my parents, and then I drive four hours back, and then the next day we drive home here. So I'm on my drive back. I get in the car. I've delivered the boys, and I say to God, well, God, I got four hours. I'm totally open. We're driving. And, and so now's, now's your, your opportunity to download with me what it is out of the story you need me to say. And I start driving, and no joke, within like five minutes of the drive in the big sprinter van by myself, this is, this is all I, I hear God say in that place where I tend to hear his voice. This is what he says. He goes, Renaud, you're looking at the wrong story. I'm like, What? Uh, God, the confusion here perhaps between you and me is this, that it's the only story. See, I don't have any other stories. If there was five or six, I might go, oh, gosh, I wasted a lot of time on the wrong story. Which of the other four do you want? But I've had an uneventful three weeks. Nothing has happened. My kids have been great. Everything's been fine. We've relaxed. I I have no other story. So so he goes, this isn't the story. And I go, do you want me to look harder? Because I've looked. This is it. And God goes, no, not harder, Reno, bigger. Bigger, you're missing it, man. You need, you, need to, you need to expand out a little bit. Story isn't the boogie board experience, the near-death deal. That happens. It's called a rip current. Here's the big story. How'd your, how'd your three weeks go? Went pretty well, huh? Uneventful. Pretty normal. Kids fought a little bit, but that's normal. It's a real normal week. Do you remember what the last two years felt like? There's been no uneventful anything for two years. Since you entered into the story of adoption, it has been nothing but eventful, exhausting, tireless movement forward, lecture after lecture, lesson after lesson, discipline after discipline, strategy after strategy, parenting tool after parenting tool. Every day has been a movement to try to get things done. I started remembering back to the sermons. I mean, I have sermons titled things like this, The Darkness Rises. I mean, who titles their sermons that? I do, because that's what it felt like, right? And so he goes, do you remember when times were particularly difficult, do you remember the gospel promise that I laid down for you, that I said, hold on to this promise because it's coming someday? And I I remembered, I was like, yes, absolutely, that's what I held on to. Here's the gospel promise. This is what the gospel promises us us by its definition, by the way it lays out. When God uh, stepped into our story to redeem us, to rescue us, to restore us, here's how he did it. The divine God crawled into a human body and became flesh and blood. He became extremely uncomfortable for us in order to step into our world and become part of our story, right? So he gets, he comes, flesh and blood, he sweats, he's tired, he's hungry, stuff that the divine should never have to experience, but he does because he's part of our story to come and rescue us. Then he spends his entire life serving the people that ought to be serving him. Isn't crazy? They ought to be serving him. And in the process of serving all of the people that ought to be serving him, what do the people do? They are skeptical, ungrateful. They don't want anything to do with him. They want him to give them what they want. And if he doesn't, they get mad. Sound familiar? And then after pouring himself out for years and years to serve us, we take him and we take a cross and we put on his back and we crucify him on that cross and we watch him die and we celebrate. Yeah. Yeah killed him. 
And he calls that the redemptive process. He says that's how he redeems us. Now, if the story ended at the cross, it would be a very sad, depressing story. But it doesn't end at the cross. You see, three days after his crucifixion, Jesus comes back from the dead, conquering death and telling us, I came to redeem your story. I needed to die for you, but I didn't have to stay dead. And now that I've resurrected, here's what I want you to do. Here's the gospel story. I want you to follow me. And following me looks like this. Go out into the world and every day, take up your cross and follow me. Remember Jesus said that? He said, look, I'm gonna call you as ambassadors into the world and you're gonna take on some of the unredeemed broken stories around you in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family, uh, in in your circles of influence, in the stories I call you into and you're gonna take them on. They're gonna cost you resources. They're gonna cost you comfort and convenience. They're gonna cost you a lot of stuff. And as you take them on, eventually you don't don't carry a cross just because it's fun. You carry a cross because somewhere on a hill you gotta go die. You will die to self in that process. It, it, It is gonna feel like you're dying. But here's the gospel promise. When you have walked through the redemptive process of dying to self for my sake, remember Jesus said, if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it, but if you try to preserve it, you will lose it. These are all the things Jesus said. He said, then here's what I'm gonna do. I promise you I'm gonna resurrect your story. I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna redeem it, I'm gonna make it beautiful. It may not happen in a year or two or five or 10 or even in your lifetime, but I promise you when you look back one, one day, you will never regret stepping into redemptive stories on my behalf, because I will always use them to redeem them. And God goes, you've been telling me for years, Renaud, you better redeem this one, it's, it's killing our entire family of 10. And here we just had an awesome vacation, three weeks, uneventful, relatively normal. And God goes, Welcome to the beginning of resurrection. Now the key word is beginning there because we're not naive, right? Resurrection hasn't fully occurred and we're like, yay, every day is gonna be beautiful and uneventful. No, we just had the week before school right now. It was not a good week. It didn't go well. It was really hard in our house. But we have this beautiful glimpse of the vacation that right there, everything is unfolding as it should. God is resurrecting our story. See, God said to me in the car, Renault, For three weeks I have been speaking in the quiet, in the silence, in the relaxation, in the normal, in the ordinary, and you've been so fixed on the big story for two weeks, you haven't heard a thing I've said. Because you've been expecting me to speak some dramatic word out of a big giant story when when I'm actually speaking every day is in the ordinary, seemingly tedious moments that are just unfolding before you. And God brought a story to my mind. It's a story about a man named Elijah. Elijah was having a particularly bad moment in his journey. Uh, Israel had turned against God and they were trying to eradicate any version of God's voice in their life. So they tore down the altars of God, they, 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 they killed everybody that belonged to God and they sought after God's prophets, those people that spoke for God and they were systematically killing them off with the sword to the point where the only prophet left was Elijah. So Elijah goes and hides in a mountain somewhere, scared and frustrated by what's unfolding. Clearly, God is absent and silent because everything is falling apart. And a story unfolds in the book of 1 Kings, and I want to read it to you. It's going to be in the the book of 1 Kings in, in chapter 19. And in chapter 19 of 1 Kings, which is on page 193, if you're using one of our Bibles, you're welcome to read along. It says this, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 9. There he came to a cave, this is Elijah, and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. That is a dramatic moment. And so God says, all right, I'm sensing you need some information from, him, from me, don't you? See, Elijah was there going, help! And God goes, I have some stuff to tell you. I'm gonna speak to you, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to go, and I want you to stand on the mount and wait, and I will come and speak. Kind of like my vacation. When you go on vacation, I got some things to tell you. Show up there and wait, and I'll tell you. So Elijah does that. Look, it says, verse 11, and he said, God, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, it says now, as Elijah went out, and behold, the Lord passed by. Okay, and here's what it says. And a great 
and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. I mean, God's got something big to say. I mean, a wind comes and smashes rocks apart. Wouldn't that be pretty cool, cool to watch? You're like, like a tornado, and you're like, God is coming. I mean, if I were Elijah, I'd be going, oh, this is the moment. God's got something big to say, and look what it says. It says, but the Lord was not in the wind. He was not in the wind. Now, in that moment, I might go, huh, that's, that's odd. I would have thought, you know, big, big, huge wind, rocks crashing, that's God. But you see, then you realize why God was not in the wind, because look what happens next. Look. And after the wind, an earthquake. Oh, I get it now. That wasn't the big story. The big story is the earthquake, right? I mean, the whole mountain shaking, God's demonstrating. You think I'm in a big wind? Oh, I'm, I'm much bigger than that. Much bigger than that. I'm in the earthquake, baby. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. Verse 12, and after the earthquake, a fire. I mean, this is like burning bush level. Uh, this is Moses level. You understand? Fire comes. God is going to speak in the fire. Wow. I mean, the earthquake was big, but the fire's bigger. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Almost nothing. Almost inaudible. If you weren't listening, you wouldn't even hear it. No fire, no earthquake, no wind, no nothing. Just a quiet whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and it said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah answers and then God gives him instruction. I want you to go down there. Here's what I want you to do. I'm with you. It's all good. Don't panic. See, God spoke in the whisper. And I'm driving in the car and God goes, man, Renault, so often, you're so acutely aware of some big story that might happen and waiting and waiting for me to talk, but I'm not there. I've been speaking in the ordinary, everyday stuff all along. And you miss it because your eyes are fixed on the big stuff. See, that's a consequence of the cultural context we're in. Our culture has taught us, you and me, to pay no attention to the ordinary, to forget about it, to see it as nothing but filler, noise that we have to get through. It has taught us to pay attention to the big moments, the extraordinary moments, the sensational moments. I mean, you watch the news. The news is always about the next sensational moment, the next scary moment, the next big thing. And if they don't have anything, they actually have B-roll footage that they make up so they can make something interesting. Oh my, there's a big cloud uh, west of Orlando. You never know it might turn into a hurricane. You're like, what? I've seen bigger storms in my neighborhood. They just they, they do whatever it takes to keep us on the edge. If it's ordinary, if it's normal, everything's going well in our city right now, everybody. Chill. That's not news. That's filler. I mean, sports games are the same way. Have you ever seen the end of a sports game? And then the, you know, the 30 minutes afterwards is the big sort of you know, a recap. And they got a five-minute recap of that game. Let's look at what happened. Do you, do you ever see them say this? For five minutes, like, it was a pretty ordinary game. Everybody moved the ball back and forth uh, over and over again. Nothing really happened. Um, there was this one touchdown at some point, but you know, that's not really relevant uh, because really every, no, they, they go, you know what, the, the entire long stretch of the game was filler material. Here are the two key moments in the game that occurred that you need to pay attention to. So we have been trained to ignore the ordinary. And in ignoring the ordinary, we have begun to experience the ordinary everyday moments as nothing but stuff we have to get through, stuff we have to move through, filler material that we're trying to move from one big moment to the next, waiting for God to show up because we're stuck in the ordinary. It's like the middle movie of The Lord of the Rings, you know? You kind of know you have to go see it because otherwise you won't know what the third movie's about. But when you're done watching it, you go, I could have watched the third movie without this one. You know, it's, it's necessary, but it's filler material. It's kind of like laundry. You all know you have to do laundry, otherwise you wear dirty clothes. But do you enjoy it? No. And must it really be done? Isn't there a shortcut somehow? We have 10 people in our house. You do the math. Laundry matters, but it doesn't matter. You see what I'm saying? It's filler space. It's ordinary. It's tedious. It's difficult. And it's boring. And I don't want to be part of it. I want out. So what we've done is we've become a people that instead of asking God, what do I do faithfully in the ordinary? Instead, we ask God to deliver us from it. Get, get, get me out, God. Get me out. Are you, are you in a job that you don't enjoy? Kind of tedious, you go to work every day, spin your wheels. 
What have you been asking God? Oh God, make me faithful in this job. Help me to be on mission here. And man, let the joy flow out of me. Now most of us don't do that. Oh God, deliver me from this insanity. Take me somewhere that I will love, where I can be someone extraordinary for you. Give me that job and I will, I will live for you. In a hard relationship, it's gotten a little tough. It was nice at first. Baby was born, you're like, oh, so beautiful. And now they're a small child and you're like, I don't, I don't want them. Are you there? Because it's tedious and it's ongoing and you've told them 10,000 times and they're not listening. And, and what do we do? We just, God, deliver us from this season of life. Deliver us from this. Are you, are you in a marriage or in a relationship with someone that started well and now it's rough? God, fix them. They do not know what they're doing. Oh, God, deliver me from this insanity. When do we ever step in and say, God, thank you for this ordinary, regular old story. Help me be faithful in it. See, in our economy, in our culture's economy, it says this, what you do in the big moments, what you do in that moment that matters is gonna define you. What's on your resume in that moment or in that interview or at that juncture, you gotta watch for those because if you blow it there, it's over. But if you get it right there, it'll define you. And God goes, don't listen to this culture because my economy does not function that way. God's economy says this, what you do with the little stuff every day is gonna define you as faithful. And what you do with the big stuff hardly matters. Everybody's always good at the big stuff. But the little stuff, the boring stuff, the ongoing stuff, the hard stuff, the, the difficult, tedious stuff, that's where faithfulness is born. Jesus told a story about this. In the book of Matthew in chapter 25 and in the book of Luke in chapter 19, he shares the story that there was this manager uh, that left uh, a master and he took a bunch of his servants and he gave them each a section of his stuff and said, listen, while I'm gone, I just really want you to plug away with the stuff I give you and be faithful in it. And when I return, we'll talk. And, and he gave these, these guys some things. And then in uh, Matthew chapter 25, verse 19, he returns after a long absence. So, so we get the, the picture from the story. He was gone such a long time that you might have just uh, figured he's never coming back. You've given up on, but look what happened. Verse 19. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you delivered me five talents. Here I have made five more talents over a long stretch of time. You understand? He's, uh, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Now listen, here's the key. You have been faithful over little I will set you over much. Then the second servant who'd been given two talents comes with the same story. I got two talents. I worked diligently, faithfully, day after day, developing these two talents. There are four talents now. And the master goes, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with little. I will give you much to be faithful over. The third guy comes with one talent and he buried it. And he spent his time not diligently working faithfully day in and day out in the ordinary processes because he was afraid. And the master says to him, man, you just needed to be faithful with a little and you couldn't even pull that off. So now I'm gonna take it from you and give it to someone else because I'm not gonna let you steward a lot. See, in God's economy, he always tells us, you will not be defined as faithful by what you do in the big moments alone. You will be defined as faithful by what you do in the day-to-day, everyday, ordinary stuff. The stuff you don't make videos about. The stuff you don't tell stories about. Just the stuff. Stay faithful there and you will see the great story unfold because my big story is in the small moments. It's in the small moments, not in the big ones. So God spoke to my heart. He said, Renaud, listen, the last two years have been intense. They've been big. They've been, they've been crazy. Every moment has been unrelenting parenting. And now you're at that stage where all the new stuff that you were trying to pour into the children, teaching them all the new principles and the new things, they all know them now. I've told Brooke this several times. They, they all know the stuff now. They just won't do it. See, and it's actually easier to pour all the new stuff in because you got this hope that as soon as they know it, all will be well. But now they know it, so now what comes out of our mouths a lot is this. I've told you this a thousand times. It's actually been 4,312, but I'm giving them some grace. And they're still doing it. And, and God spoke to me and said, the next two years are gonna be tedious. 
It's going to be ongoing. Same old, same old, same old, same old, same old, same old. Pouring in, pouring in. No new stuff. If you blog, you got nothing. You know what I'm saying? It's no new story. It's just, I could blog again about this story from last week because it's still the same. Just keep plugging away. And he said, Renaud, be faithful in the little plugging aways and I will paint the greatest story out of that. And he said the same thing to me about us. He did, because this is what vacation's about for me. God, what do you want for us? And he said, Renaud, lead, lead the people well into the tedious, everyday, faithful stuff. Call them out of just the big moments and call them into the everyday moments in their personal lives and in the life of the church. I do not want Mosaic to be marked and defined by what we do on one particular day in the year or one particular moment or one particular thing. I want us to be defined by the tedious, ongoing, seemingly ordinary faithfulness that goes on and on every day. That's where we will change the world. That's different than I might imagine, but it's God's economy, not ours. We, we just came off a weekend, uh, Mission Serve, right? It was awesome. You'll hear more about it in a few minutes. I mean, over 600 of us, almost 2,000 volunteer hours in one weekend given to our city. Ooh, that's worth writing an article about, showing a video about. And I'm glad we did it. It was a big moment. But that will not define us as faithful. What will define us as faithful is what we do now, week after week, in each of us going and serving in those same organizations every month as missional communities, pouring ourselves in week after week. It's not gonna be as exciting. You don't get to wear a green shirt with 600 other people. You just go by yourself or with your missional community. But it's faithful. It's faithful. And that's what God honors. When we have these big moments where we do big you know, uh, uh, drives, the backpack drive for kids, we're gonna tell a beautiful story about all the backpacks we bought for them. Some kid in Ethiopia needs a surgery, awesome, let's give toward that. You guys uh, respond to those things as do we all. And we respond well. But you know what's funny? What's funny is when we have to just tithe week after week, so we have to take a portion of our income and just give it back to no particular story, just to God to do what he wants with it. Not, not so fun, is it? Not so fun, there's no video about that. It just isn't. It's just what God calls you to faithfully. And that we don't do. That we're not good at. And, and, and so we've, we've, we've lived in this culture where it's one big thing to the next, just trying to get through the middle movie. And here's what God says. The middle movie matters to me because it's in the middle movie that I define your faithfulness and I define your growth. And it's there where we plug away to the story I'm unfolding. In the book of Acts, the early church has a dramatic start with the Spirit of God entering the disciples and then they preach the gospel. 3,000 come to Jesus in Jerusalem. They get filled with the Holy Spirit. It's dramatic. And then in Acts chapter two, verse 42, it says this, and the people devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And they gave of themselves to one another. See. What the early church tells us is what sustained their faithfulness wasn't the dramatic moments of the Spirit entering into them. It was buckling down and being devoted to the things God calls them to every day. And then in the car, as a closer, here's what God says to me. Um, this is the whole thing happened in the car, four-hour drive. It's downloading. I'm so excited. And God goes, now, Renault, you worked really hard for that big beach story where you had to swim out and rescue a kid, so I'm going to go ahead and use it as an illustration it's not the big story, but I'm gonna let you use it. I was like, thank you, God. I worked so hard for that one. I'm so excited. So he said, listen, here's where the story ends. You know how we handle this now? You know where we go from here? Renaud, how, how, how am I gonna be faithful every day? What does that look like? Here's what it looks like. You wake up in the morning. You walk out onto the beach that's your day. And you look out into the ocean of ordinary that you've got going on. It should be pretty uneventful. People swimming, the normal stuff. You got work, you got, you got neighbors, you got spouses, you got kids, you got stuff going on. Somewhere in that day, somewhere there, someone's caught in a riptide. I'm telling you, it always is. Maybe it's someone that doesn't yet know Jesus and so just the general riptide of their life. Or maybe it's one of, one of your loved ones that's just listening to the foolishness of the enemy instead of listening to the gospel and they're kind of caught. Or maybe, maybe it's someone around you that's just kind of drifting off. And, and your job is simple. Your job is simple. When, when you see that moment in your day that you go, there, this is what today was about. This is the person I'm called to, just to speak the gospel into their life. Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's a kid, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a, a, a student that you are at school with. I don't know, but just someone that you go, that was my moment. I gave them a hug, I smiled, I, I, I shared something with them that was important. And then you know, you, you swam out. 
So your job is to swim out to whoever's out there in the riptide and get them. Now understand this, if you keep swimming out every day, some days it's gonna be walk in, you're still waist deep, you grab the person, you drag them out and everything's fine. Some days you're gonna swim out to that second person and you're not gonna be having your feet on the ground and you're gonna feel panicked. And when you turn around to try to swim back, you're gonna say to yourself, I'm never gonna make it. I should never have swam out here. I'm gonna be late for work, then the boss is gonna get mad, I'm gonna get fired, this is bad. And this is what God said to me. Whenever you swim out, swim out into the ordinary to go make change. Sometimes it'll be very difficult, but there's always a boogie board on its way. You just don't know it. It's always on its way. I've already sent it, it's already coming. So trust me enough to give yourself away so that your faithfulness day in and day out will mark your journey. And that's what I've made you for. This is our life, folks. Being faithful in the ordinary, tedious things that our culture has told us to see as filler material. But we need to realize that that's not true. That's where the faithful are born. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your incredible patience with us and your graciousness to us to keep our eyes fixed in the right places. Thanks for the vacation that Brooke and I and the kids got to have uh, that felt almost ordinary and normal this year. And thank you, God, that despite moments that were big stories, that the real big story was in all the small stuff. Would you allow us to take heed to that and to walk into the areas of our lives where maybe we've kind of become weary and tired of plugging away, sort of ready to give up, kind of done with the tedious nature of the day-to-day, asking you to deliver us from it. Would you call us back into it? Give us fresh vision for the incredible privilege it is that we get to be faithful every day. May we give of ourselves in our daily lives and may we trust you that when we do and it costs us more than we thought, we find ourselves drowning a bit, that while we're panicking, you've already sent the boogie board in. We're already gonna be fine. And God, would you resurrect our stories as we give ourselves to big things on your behalf, trusting you to finish the great work of redemption that we started by swimming in. May you rescue us as we go out to rescue others. We love you, Jesus. Amen.